and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at the University of Western Ontario. My name is Roger, and I'm joined by my co-host, Ariel. How are you doing, Ariel? I'm good. Fantastic. And we are joined by our guest today, Naveen Fulcher. How are you doing, Naveen? Great, thank you. How are you? Oh, we're, I'm doing fantastic. Great. Now, Naveen, you're here to talk to us a little bit about your research today. Would you like to uh, start us off? Yeah, sure. So... I'm not sure how much detail you want, but generally what we do in my lab is I worked for um, Suzanne Schmidt's lab here, and she looks at sensory filtering and sensory motor gating and the processes, and we're trying to figure out mechanisms of these processes. And one of the reasons why, I guess the main reason why, is because we see deficits of the processes in some uh, psychiatric illnesses, for example, schizophrenia. So, of course, I can get into more detail as to what exactly sensory motor gating is and whatnot, but um, sensory motor gating deficits are a hallmark of schizophrenia, but it's also seen in um, people with autism spectrum disorder, Tourette syndrome, fat, uh, fragile X syndrome. So um, what we're trying to figure out is what's happening in the brain, which brain regions are affected during particular issues, and what cell types should we be trying to target so that we can eventually get into some drug development and find treatments for these sorts of disorders. Alrighty, so you got into a, a few different topics there. Uh, firstly, I want to bring up the topic of uh, sensory gating, sensory filtering. You mentioned that a few times. Do you want to maybe just uh, explain for our listeners a little bit further about that? Yeah, for sure. So how I would think about it is, you know, for a healthy human, let's say you hear a sound that produces a startle response. So let's say I clap my hands and you startle and we can measure this. And then let's say we also have a softer sounding um, clap that does not produce a startle response. And then what we look at is when you have that uh, soft sound followed by the larger sound that should produce that startling um, response, we see that naturally there's this inhibition of that startle in healthy adults or healthy humans. So we can measure this and it's called pre-pulse inhibition and that's Mm. exactly how we quantify issues of sensory motor gating. So we find with people with autism, schizophrenia, they actually can't, um, in their brain, just block out redundant information. So their brain can't process the sensory stimuli the same way we do, or, you know, a healthy, sorry, healthy human would. So they hear that soft sound that normally we wouldn't startle to, I wouldn't say just as loud, but they do startle. And they don't show this inhibition when we test for pre-pulse inhibition. So we know that they, there's something going on in their brains where there is a change and we're trying to figure out how does that happen. So I'm not sure if that answered your question. But uh, very much so. Okay. Uh, I, so, so, so essentially uh, that the first clap uh, yeah. prevents the surprise of the louder clap that yeah. is supposed to startle or uh, induce that emotional response in, in, in the subject. Yeah, and it's supposed to be indicative of our brains being able to block out redundant information. So Very it's considered to be an evolutionarily conserved response so that we're able to sit in a room and not hear random things around us like the drain pipes and, you know, a fire alarm a few buildings away or whatever. Sure, so. anything that's not immediately relevant to us, we're able to just filter out. So yeah, can... naturally. But then you see, for example, people with schizophrenia or let's say children with autism covering their ears when things are just overstimulating and they're feeling very overwhelmed and uncomfortable. And, you know, it's taken us a while to figure out what's really ah. going on. And 
which now well, we still don't haven't figured it out but at least we got to that point realizing that it's actually a mechanism that's obviously faulty and how did that happen and how can we fix it so so basically uh in this in this paradigm with uh you know the two stim two stimuli whatever sense uh clapping i guess would be sound um the first one actually triggers a small startle yeah uh, and that kind of that it's that little startle that prevents startling from the next next yeah uh, and it's milliseconds apart so this has been tested not only with sounds but also with tactile stimuli so puff of air and we test this in humans as well um, puff of air to the eye and we test the blinking response in humans and animals um, also with so it's sound tactile auditory oh, auditory just said that one so also light so also visual stimuli we can test mm. with as well and what's interesting is looking at even like uh, multi-sensory deficits and that's one thing our lab also looks at not myself yet but we look at light and sound and how if we pair the two how that's actually different and how the responses are different and um so you it's i know i said clap as an example but at least when it's actually um calculated it's it's obviously you have a particular sound specific decibel and specific milliseconds apart it's all very very calculated so that is fascinating. So, so the method that you're studying the sensory filtering by, it, it can be studied over a variety of different types of stimuli. You mentioned not just the auditory, but uh, multiple different types. It, it, you also, uh, earlier you were mentioning that these processes in the brain are evolutionarily, evolutionarily conserved yeah. uh, throughout, uh, uh, throughout different species. And mm -hmm. you also mentioned the topic of cell types and you jump back and forth between mm -hmm. animals and humans. So, so I'm, I'm tr trying to understand how you actually study this in your models uh, in the lab. Yeah, um, so what we've realized with healthy humans, healthy rats, we can look at their um, sensory filtering and processes and we can quantify in the same way we do with humans in rats or other animals, but I, I tend see. to use rats. So we put them in our startle boxes, have everything you know au automated and we um, have everything obviously recorded and then we can analyze it that way. So when we said cell types, it's because we're aware of the auditory pathway. So the, there's this primary startle pathway that we know exists. So research has shown that you know um, signals get sent through this at the other, end up affecting motor neurons, and then we see that startle reflex. So this is within the brain then? <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah, it's within the brain. And then with animals, we see the same thing. Um, so yeah, in animals, we see the same thing, so we can measure it the same way. So what we're trying to figure out is if, in my, with my work, if I target specific cell types, if I inhibit them or activate them, how does it affect pre-pulse inhibition? How does it affect the startle response? So if we see that by activating a cell type, it's inhibiting the startle response more, or, um, or if it's, let's say, um, bettering the prepulse inhibition then we know that okay then maybe that cell type is important which we have found now we're trying to figure out okay that cell type which brain region what's going on and i can talk to you more about how we inhibit and activate if you'd like so yeah that's really interesting how you can tease it apart and work out like exactly like down to the cell like how is this um phenomena occurring in the brain right from like like set you sense it and it goes into your body, into your into your into your brain, 
and then it comes out and you respond in a in a physical way with like a motor response mm-hmm. so it's a whole pathway and along it you're gonna like tease it apart and work out which yeah. cells are involved and i should have mentioned that the pre-pulse inhibition pathway is a little bit different so it's not the exact pathway that's that's that we know is the auditory yeah. um, um main startle pathway so the startle pathway is definitely more um I don't know, made clear in the literature and the pre-pulse inhibition pathways is really what we're trying to figure out because it is different and it's still a little bit up in the air as to what's going on. So, uh, you know, teasing it apart, it seems like, you know, you got to do, I'm imagining some really targeted uh, targeted changes uh, to maybe, I don't know, certain proteins, certain genes, certain uh, mechanisms. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm wondering... Um, if you can't or and again you also said it that it was evolutionarily conserved Mm -hmm. so i'm wondering as well if uh there's like these particular proteins involved if this is entirely entirely a genetic genetic uh problem so Mm. it's entirely determined by some biological basis and not there's no environmental thing that can come in and alter your ability to do this does do people change in their uh, or do people or any animals change in their ability to do um, sensory motor gating mm-hmm. uh, throughout their life? Well, it's a good question. I would say, and I mean, I'm not sure what what's you know big in the media these days. Like, do people? I like with schizophrenia, for example. It's you're not necessarily born schizophrenic, right? You have the predisposition to not to maybe develop it, but you're not born schizophrenic. So, you know, do kids that don't have schizophrenia yet, but they're going to, let's say, you know, they don't know it yet. But 20 years ago, before they had schizophrenia, did they have sensory processing deficits? I don't think so. But it's a good question. Because if that's the case, then it wouldn't be environmentally triggered. It would just be a genetic situation where something happens at some point, you know, the schizophrenia gets triggered and then they yeah. become schizophrenic so i'm not sure and then also with autism there are also hypotheses that things are happening in in the womb and that's when their autism sort of is developed so there's i know some research on that so then if that's the case then it's a combination of environment and and genetics so i'm not really sure but i would assume that like most things a lot of these issues are a combination of both like you have the predisposition to have certain issues, but also they find with sensory processing deficits and with prepulse inhibition deficits that there is a variety of types of issues that people show these deficits. So, for example, people with OCD, not it's also a spectrum, right? So it's not like mm-hmm. everybody with OCD is going to have prepulse inhibition deficits, but a good handful of them will. So then I'm not sure because with OCD, is it, you know, then it goes back to, I don't know, like with psychiatric illnesses, there's so many different relations and it's hard to really figure it out. And that's exactly what we're trying to do. So to answer your question, don't know yet. <laughs> but it, in, in you saying that it's a spectrum, I imagine that if you can, like you said, that you can actually measure uh, in humans with like the air puff or light or any of these stimuli, um, a pre-pulse inhibition in actually a human the same way you do it in the rat. Mm-hmm. So uh, when you have a more somebody with more severe schizophrenia or more severe autism, yeah. more severe OCD, do they have a more more severe deficit in pre-pulse inhibition? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, people that are just, yeah, on the extreme spectrum of autism, definitely they will be much more sensitive to stimuli around them and find it really hard to cope in large crowds and things like that as opposed to someone who maybe has Asperger's. I'm not sure. I, I think that's not on the spectrum anymore these days. But, so for example, right, high-functioning autism, like they wouldn't be as bothered by a concert or something like that. Yeah, I suppose with um, especially disorders that are labeled as a spectrum disorder, autism and diseases or disorders such as these, but I guess just uh, mental health disorders mm-hmm. more generally, uh, th- there seems to be this uh, general consensus that there is a environmental and genetic basis uh, that coexist uh, mm-hmm. to trigger the disorder or the symptoms related to the disorder. And speaking of which, uh, so you, the way I understand it, Naveen, you don't uh, use a specific animal model or a rodent model of autism or schizophrenia, but but you do have a very unique method of studying this prepulse inhibition. Would you like to speak a little bit about that? Yeah, good question. So uh, you're right. I don't have a specific disease model. Some people in my lab do have disease models of, mm-hmm. let's say, autism. Um, I don't. So what I do is I just, I target cell types. So to do so, we use this method called DREAD. Okay, DREADS. What it stands for is designer receptors exclusively activated by designer drugs. Hmm. So to keep it simple, um, we're able to basically perform these brain surgeries on rats, just wild type rats that have no manipulation. Um, And then what we do is we'll inject this virus, the DREAD, um, targeting whichever cell we want. And uh, essentially what's going to happen, it'll create these, let's say, um, not like not natural, I guess, receptors on the cells okay. that won't be activated until um, an inert or um, a designer drug is injected into the animal that will then activate that virus. So you can think of it as the the initial surgery just has the receptors sit on the cells and then the okay. injection right before we want to test will then turn them on or on or off will activate them and then will then depending on the virus will turn those cells on or off interesting okay um, and by not natural receptors you mentioned that earlier that that i would take it to mean that the receptors aren't found anywhere in the body or the brain uh, before you put the virus that expresses that specific receptor into yeah so it's supposed to be a modified version of what we natural uh, receptor type that we naturally have okay um muscarinic receptors so it's uh supposed to mimic them kind of thing but won't be activated until we have that systemic injection that will then so it's kind of nice because then you're not just um lesioning those cells or lesioning that area or just completely getting rid of them or whatnot or activating them permanently we it's nice because then we can over time you know test these animals or you know see if things change if their behavior changes over time or you know things like that so in a way it's actually um a really less invasive way of doing some studies that people might have done with surgery in the mm-hmm. past. Yeah, so I don't know if you've heard of optogenetics, but it's very similar where you can uh, specify cell types, turn them on or off, respectively, and... With light. W- exactly, with light. So you obviously know m- a little bit about optogenetics. I guess that would be the opto portion of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's, I guess, less, arguably less of a naturalistic approach because you'd have to have you know, a, a wire coming out of the animal's head 
um, which would then produce that light that would then turn the cells on or off. So although that would be nice to look at more of like time-specific tests that you want to look at, but um, it's definitely not something that we could do in humans. Not saying that the dreads you could do in humans yet, but, you know, at least it's something that we can get this going with, you know? Wait, is there anyone actually considering doing dreads in humans? No, no, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, okay. very far-fetched, but no, I really don't think that would ever happen. But. Well, in any case, it seems like these very <laughs> advanced experimental, at this point, techniques that, that you're using uh, have, a lot, uh, have a, a lot of experimental control in whatever you're looking at. Yeah, so far. I mean, you never know. It's still a relatively new technique. It's only been around for about 10 years. Okay. Um, so you never know. But so far, we, of course, try to include as many controls as we can and make sure it makes so, sense. Um, so. Was anyone in your lab doing dreads before? One student was, yeah. So she okay. graduated last year, or I guess when I started, yeah, last year. So, yeah, kind of took that over. So if we'd like to maybe progress on to what the uh, results of your research may um, speak to in terms of uh, potentially treating some of the disorders that you're speaking about. Yeah, definitely. So the hope eventually would be to figure out the cell type within the brain region that we're interested in and then pair that with a disease model. So as I mentioned in our lab, we already have some disease models. So it'd be nice to find a disease model that we have that we know the pre-pulse inhibition is um, disrupted. And then if we figure out on my end which cell type we want to target, then we can try to recover those deficits. And that's really, that would be a nice end goal for me with my degree is to have that disease model, figure out the cell type, and then recover the deficits. And then that's exactly when we would get into, okay, now let's develop the drug that would appropriately do that where we can eventually turn that into a human medication. That's fantastic. And, and would the end goal ultimately only be a drug or, or would there be potential for some sort of environmental or, or some kind of physical way to you know, exercise or counseling that, that may uh, trigger the same kinds of processes within the brain that you're trying to look at experimentally right now? Yeah, I mean, definitely if, if we can sort that out. I mean, it's hard to judge on my end because everything I target is very, very specific. Of so course, to say, yeah. okay, um, the GABA cells in this region are affected by sleep. You know, I'm mm -hmm. just obviously just yep. giving a very random example. But yeah, I mean, you always want, I think, with mental health issues, pair environmental changes and things like that that you don't need to yeah, be taking drugs for. Pair that with drug treatments as well so that'd be really nice if we could see some correlation there and and have some solutions so um i think with uh i mean at least with with autism from what i know it's more like a kind of a brain-wide sort of disease like there's not like one area so some diseases some one part of the area one part of the brain's more more uh, affected than another mm -hmm. um so if you find like a cell type that is in like one region and then you th you see it's helpful in in aut in your autism model. I mean, how how could it uh how could it apply to a, a autism where where they for the whole brain? Mm hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I think for our research, it's not that we're trying to find. A, unfortunately, not trying to find a cure for autism. It would be a cure for this specific deficit, which is the sensory 
processing deficits Mm -hmm. and it would just be so that these people can just have an easier and better life so that they're not just overwhelmed and feeling uncomfortable all the time which seems like for some people it's the case Mm -hmm. unfortunately i don't think it would it should be considered a cure um but it would certainly make their lives better which would be a good start point um and then maybe it would you know like we've seen with other medications have beneficial effects in other areas of their lives that are affected by their disorder Hmm. but as you said it's it's very um broad throughout the brain and it's not just one region that's affected so it's hard to just say oh yeah that will definitely cure you know autism yeah, but I mean, you'd rather have um some treatment that really helps with one of the symptoms yeah. that you're having especially than, such a de- just debilitating one yeah because <laughs> exactly. i mean if you even uh like roger brought up that you know there's environmental enrichment of some sort or, mm-hmm. or any anything where like i know that there's people who are uh specifically trained to take care of um autistic children and like they 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 have to you know um teach them in a certain way and and Mm -hmm. talk to them in a certain way to make them to help them um, be comfortable in their environment so if you have that and it only works so well then maybe with if you treat a couple of these symptoms maybe including um deficits deficits in pre-pulse inhibition Mm -hmm. then those people who are um treating the children maybe will be better yeah exactly Oh, that's that's and true. I, and I guess that kind of relates back to Naveen's point where you treat one aspect of the disorder and other aspects of the individual's lives can be enhanced mm-hmm. because that, that particular symptom's been taken yeah. away. Yeah, and also, of course, stress is one huge, huge issue. And if you're bettering something like everyday issues, like, oh, I can't even walk down the street because the sounds of the traffic around me is too overwhelming you know reduce stress in the long run you know stress ruins everything so and i guess hope, <laughs> i guess hope that's a great point in and of itself but then i guess on top of that hopefully some other research might be able to converge on top of yours to to lead to some kind of uh, ultimate treatment in the yeah area. exactly all we're trying to do i guess is you know at least find out some of the basics um even though it's not basic at all it's a lot of work but <laughs> in our you know sounds like it yeah, but it's, yeah, we're always just trying to figure out what's the root cause, what's the underlying issue, and if we can figure that out, it'll just take us to the next step, and yeah. So so you've chosen to uh, pursue uh, your PhD in this foundational kind of basic neuroscience degree. Uh, do you, <laughs> how, how, is, uh, how is that treating you so far? Well, it's funny that you should mention that, because I only rolled into my PhD about a week and a half ago. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, thanks a lot. Maybe, um, maybe could you quickly tell people what it means to roll in? Cause yeah. Some, some programs don't have that, and people don't know what that means, per se. Yeah, you know what? It was one of the reasons I chose this program here at Western is because I noticed that they had that option um, hmm. to roll into PhD from a master's degree. So I originally signed up for a master's degree with my supervisor, and I had voiced my interest to roll into PhD, and she was very excited about that and said that's the exact kind of candidate we want is candidates who plan to roll into PhD eventually, you know, given that the supervisor has the funding mm-hmm. and whatnot and you're interested, of course. So that was great. And then I think how it works in the neuroscience program is you have within the first six to 18 months of being here, you have that option as long as your advisory committee agrees and you have a certain amount of work completed 
et cetera, et cetera. Your, you know, of course, your supervisor wants that, then <laughs> you can roll into it. So that's basically it. I did essentially one year of my master's, and then um, now I have four more years that I could stay on for PhD, or maybe less, or maybe more. You never know, but <laughs> that's I think usually the timeline is they say four more years, but you never know. Well, that's fantastic. <laughs> and do you hope to continue along the same <clears throat> the same line of research uh, in the next few years? Yeah. So you mean in this in this program or after the pro after the lab here? I, I was specifically referring to within the PhD. But if you oh. have plans for after the PhD as well, we'd love to hear them. Share them with the world. <laughs> um, well, within uh, within my research here at Western, or at least during the PhD time. Uh, I'll probably continue with this because it's still, I think, at the beginning stages. We've already had some nice progress, but there's still a lot to be done and a lot of techniques that I still want to learn and need to learn to understand what I'm doing a little bit better. Um, so, yeah, I'm pretty much going to be doing, mm, for the most part, the same thing as I'm doing now through my PhD. And then afterwards, I'm not 100% sure yet, but I do want to stay in research. Hopefully... Um, looking at neurodegenerative diseases and psychiatric illness, sort of related to what I'm doing now, and get yeah. more involved in, in drug development and pharmaceuticals. So whether that means moving to industry and working, um, working, yeah, for, let's say, pharmaceutical company, or whether that means staying in academia and working for a lab or running a lab eventually, I'm not sure, but we'll see, I guess, what my life looks like in a few years. <laughs> Very exciting. Yeah, we'll see. Thanks. Um, do you have a? I, I sometimes I think I I've asked this question to a lot of a lot of people. So let's see how uh, how what your thoughts are okay. um, for other students that are considering going into masters or PhD mm -hmm. or or maybe just new to grad school. Uh, what kind of advice do you think you could could give them? So I would say definitely network. Um, definitely get involved where where there's, you know, there are going to be people there that, number one, think along the same lines as you, enjoy the same sorts of things that you do. Um, definitely talk to people that are above you. And what I mean by that is people who are further developed in their career, you know, especially if you are aware of the field you're, or sorry, exactly, like the profession you want to eventually get into, talk to those people that are already there. Ask them how they got there, what you can do to get there kind of thing. That's that's what I did years ago in my undergrad, and it's been very helpful. I think networking is really key. Clearly, it's paid off. Uh, Naveen, Fulcher, I really want to thank you uh, very much for coming on here, sharing your uh, research Thanks, experience Roger. with us, uh, sharing your advice with us. Thanks, yeah. Uh, my it's name is... Thank you so much once again. Mm -hmm. uh, my name is Roger, and my co-host here is Ariel. Uh, you can catch us at 6 p.m. on CHRW. Uh, you can check us out at gradcast.ca, or you can t uh, send us an email at gradcastradio at gmail.com if you'd like to get involved with uh, Gradcast here at the University of Western Ontario. Uh, this was a production of the Society of Graduate Students, and I hope you all have a wonderful week. Take care. Yeah. Yeah. Cut it, cut it, cut it, cut it, cut it.